Welcome to episode 21 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my charming co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. And on this lovely evening, Eddie, how are you doing? I'm oh, doing pretty good, Winston. Just been uh, enjoying the weekend and knocking out a couple of personal projects. How about you? Um, pretty much the same. Uh, trying to be productive. Um, my aunt is out of the house this weekend, so I can machine literally as much as I want. So I started machining at like 8 a.m. today, and the Shapeoko has been going for like 10 hours. So it's it's been a pretty good weekend. And on top of that, the weather is fantastic. That's good to hear. Well, of course, it's California. So <laughs> that's kind of the default there, right? Yeah. I mean, the weather might be nice. Air quality, sketchy, but um, still enjoyable. You're heading out in the morning? I am. So I, I'm still not packed yet. I, I'm barely unpacked from my last trip. Um, but I am heading to Atlanta via Denver in the morning. And uh, that, that should be an interesting event. Um, so what I'm going to is called the Home Depot Prospective. And uh, basically they just, it's it's like a wine and dine for makers and builders. And they bring you down to Atlanta and they show off a bunch of tool vendors and what the latest and greatest in like cordless and outdoor power tools are. And I, I've seen a couple people on Instagram do it last year. And it, it like, you just get to go hands-on with like, uh, impact drivers and like power washers and just all the the new tools that are coming out this year and uh that's for me it's a little interesting because i'm not really part of that traditional like builder crowd like the biggest thing i'm i would ever make is maybe a nightstand um so i'm coming at this from a slightly different background than everyone else and uh we'll we'll see how it goes um I think my perspective is just to try and understand everything that's that's out there because my collection of cordless tools is pretty pretty meager. Um, like I've been using 12 volt tools for a while. I just recently got an 18 volt tool and that was due to a donation from someone. They they were upgrading their tools and they're like, hey, do you want this uh, Ryobi impact driver? And I was like, sure, why not? And um, just little features about it, the extra power, the um, auto-loading chuck, like that to me was like kind of eye-opening because I was like, there are all these like nice little convenience features. What else am I missing? And so I think this event will be an opportunity for me to sort of understand uh, sort of what's out there and what I'm missing out on. And then um, I've been just holding out on buying or investing in a cordless tool ecosystem. So I think this will be a good chance for me to sort of just get my hands on everything and figure out what I really want. And who knows, maybe there'll be a partnership. Maybe someone will feed me tools. This should be a good way for me to establish just a baseline of knowledge for like what's out there, what's good, what features do I want? Um, so yeah, I'll be sharing that journey on my social media as I go. That might be either the day before or the day this airs. We'll see how fast you edit. So yeah, that's what I got going on. Well, that's good. I think, um, yeah, you'll come back with some some good uh, product wisdom, if, if not anything else from that. Are they, do you know, is it exclusively kind of the Home Depot house brand, or are they showing all the brands that carry, like Milwaukee? and They they have a bunch. Milwaukee was there last year, DeWalt. Um, basically, everyone they carry and anyone who's got, like, new stuff coming out, 
I think Dremel was also there. Um, so yeah, if, if I can talk someone into giving me a cordless Dremel, that'll be fantastic. Because that's just super useful to have to like cut off tabs and just do a little quick sanding when you pull stuff off the CNC. And that's also like the other um, sort of perspective I've got. I use all of my tools to sort of support the CNC stuff. So just breaking down large materials. And so I'm looking specifically for like um, metal cutting saws and uh, just little quick, easy to pick up things that will help me at the CNC. Yeah, I can give you my recommendation, not so much about brand, but just uh, kind of family of saw. Like, because, you, you know, cutting metal, right, you can have chop saw or a multi, was it multi-purpose saw or bandsaw or whatever. Um, like, I looked at all those and ended up settling on a bandsaw. I'm very happy that I did, that I went that way. For a couple of reasons, it's like the quietest of all those options. Um, it's actually probably the least messy too. Um, I have a small, like one of those porta band saws that I mounted as a upright saw. Um, cause I, most of the stock I cut is pretty small, five inch or smaller, um, or something that'll run it okay in that five inch throat depth that I have on that saw. But even the bigger ones, um, you know, like the $300 small table band saws that they sell there, um, pretty neat little investment for the shop for the kind of stuff we do. I almost went with a multi-purpose saw. It looks like a chop saw, but it's a little bit different blade. Yeah, lower RPM and like not quite cold cut, but like it's not going to throw sparks everywhere and destroy the blade. I don't know. I thought that would end up making too much of a mess in the garage. So I'm real happy with the bandsaw. I may end up with something like that, uh, like a cold saw, or, you know, if I end up doing bigger, bigger pieces in the future that I need to cut down, like for a big BMC. But right now it's like, uh, I love like best purchase I made last year was probably that bandsaw. Um, I use it pretty much for every job and it's made my stock ordering a lot easier. I can get standard sizes now and kind of cut it down to what I need for the small machines. So that's my recommendation. Look at the bandsaws if you don't look at anything else. Yeah. The problem is I need to look for something that can fit at least about uh, four inches. Most of them cap out at like three or three and a half. Because I want to be able to resaw um, smaller boards, um, just to make like the most efficient use of like lumber and wood stock. Because most of that stuff comes in like one by, and I might only want to cut like half inch or three eighths of an inch uh, thick stock. So being able to just cut a board in half would be really nice. Yeah. So what's your what's the typical starting size for your board that you want to cut in half? Just whatever I can find, and usually that's that's a three quarter inch thick one by stuff. Um, sometimes I, I go through the, the drop spin at Rockler and you can find assorted stuff like maybe half inch and um, a lot of good, like just interesting species of wood there. But I mean, for the most part, it's just one by lumber or like two by stuff. Like I was saying that the, the Milwaukee Porta band that I got, uh, and they have several, like, I don't think they're all the same, but um, the AC powered one has, I think it's five or 5.5 inch throat depth. Like that's the biggest stock I can stick on the dimension that I'm cutting. Does that make sense? Like towards. Yeah. Yeah. Towards Just how much space you have like before that arm and that the support. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wish it was six inches because, <laughs> or just a little, right. Six would be the magic number because uh, a lot of the stock is either six inches or six inch wide, you know, versus the, I can find smaller stuff, but, but I'd like to be buying like 12 by six for a plate and stuff like that. But um, I can still do it. I just flip it over and get the last little inch, you know, 
flip it over. So you can really do like 10 inch, I guess, on the saw five and five if you're accurate when you flip it. So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what you find out there. I think I'm kind of good on hand tools. Um, so I'm hopefully not going to blow too much budget when I see your video, <laughs> your recap. Yeah, so you, you said you were working on a like at least an eight-hour machining job today. What, what Can you talk about what you're building yet? Have you revealed? I have not revealed it yet, hopefully before the end of April, but for now let's call it a, uh, a long aluminum board. And uh, yeah, so I, I've been trying to machine this 32-inch long slab of aluminum just to sort of showcase what a stock shape Oko can do. And uh, it's it's been an enlightening experience, uh, just pushing a toolpath to the point of chatter, backing off a little bit. Um, because with a project this large, you, you really do want to save as much time as you can. A safe toolpath is nice, but too conservative, and you're going to spend days just whittling away at the part. So this project has sort of forced me to, to try and maximize efficiency and not just settle for something that's that's good enough. And, uh, well, I, in my uh, haste to optimize my fusion toolpaths, apparently I'd picked an incorrect contour, and I was like 10 hours into to machining this, uh, this board, and, well, the CNC tried to pocket something where the stock had not been cleared out. And so it sort of just threw itself against the walls of the existing pocket that was there and left a really nasty gash in the part. And having sunk so much time into this part, I was I was sort of at a loss for how to recover from that. Um, but then when I, I took the time to just assess the situation further, I realized there's still plenty of meat around this feature that had been destroyed. Maybe if I just pocket out the damaged area... I can find some other way. Uh, I was going to put the carbide logo in the center of this piece, and that's what had gotten destroyed. But the outer outline of the hex shape of the logo was still intact. And so I think instead of um, having a an aluminum C in the middle, I'm going to figure out a way to do an inlay. Um, I was thinking walnut, just because like walnut aluminum or walnut brass, like those combinations uh, are, are kind of kind of sexy. And if I do an inlay, I can put a little uh, walnut uh, surround around a separate um, aluminum seat that I might machine, and it'll look almost seamless, and no one will know that uh, there, there's two extra parts in there and it's not one solid piece. Um, but sort of that, that was a rude awakening for me uh, at the start of the weekend, and I've been trying to recover since then. Um, have you ever had any sort of situations where like something goes wrong and like just the sunk cost of everything you put into it like forces you to to come up with creative ways to get around it? Yeah, I call that creative correction. <laughs> I've had my share of those, um, which is kind of cool because actually some, you know, some of the best ideas come out of that, right? That desperation of, oh, crap, you know, you're hours into it. And especially if it's uh, more of a cosmetic piece, right? Um, you know can't really get away with that on some of the commercial stuff but uh but yeah you can just kind of go back and tweak the design around the gouge or whatever and you know most of the time you can save the part right you can maybe add a an engraving that you weren't originally intending to put there or uh, a contour right some trim piece or something some trim detail 
I think that's a pretty good like trick to have in your in your tool bag, right? There are other ways of like recovering from like messing up aluminum. Uh, Vince was suggesting that I uh, find someone with a TIG welder, buy him a beer, and say, "Hey, just fill in that hole." Um, the problem is, I want to anodize this part, so I'm not sure how the heat affected zone and the filler metal will sort of just change the anodize. So uh, I figured just get rid of all that material, drop something in that that whose properties I know and can control a little better. So. Yeah, even, I don't know if you have enough meat, you could even, sounds like the pocket survived just the raised, raised uh, the, logo. The, uh, the inner wall of the pocket got damaged a little bit. So I just, I paired it back about uh, 30 thou. And that was enough so that you can, it almost looks like nothing happened in there. But now there's a, a big hole that I got to fill. Yeah, you could, you know, potentially put some threaded holes in there, uh, thread milled holes and screw whatever you want in there, right? If, or glue or epoxy, whatever you plan on doing. I am thinking E6000 because this is aluminum. And if you drop any other material in there, you have different thermal or humidity expansion contraction stuff going on. So um, E6000 I know is a really flexible adhesive. Uh, so thermal cycles, humidity cycles, it should hold everything just fine. Oh, it's it's this like super toxic but really useful. <laughs> yeah, the uh, best stuff like, is almost right? silicone adhesive. Yeah. This is this project is this is still the uh, the one that's gonna get debuted at Maker Fair. Yeah, I, I'm gonna put out a video before then just so people are aware and that they might have a little more interest in seeking me out so I can load them up with uh, DFX stickers. So yeah, people will know about it beforehand, but I will bring it to Maker Fair and sort of just show it off, uh, just because I think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen of it, you know, Winston shared a little bit of the machining video with me, so I have a pretty good idea of what it is. I can't spill the beans, but um, yeah, it's a big piece for the uh, big piece of metal to be cutting on some on the Shaboko. So I don't think uh, other than Vince has probably done some. Yeah, I think his uh, manifold was that big, but the turbo manifold. I don't think the the dimensions of it were that big. It was taller, and volume wise, it was larger. So he's removed a greater mass of aluminum. Um, but in terms of visual scale, I think I've got him beat. Yeah, that's true. Because I think he has he just has a regular S3, right? And you're doing this on the XL or XXL? Uh, the uh, XL. Yeah, yeah. So that's true. And it pretty much fills up fills it up pretty good in one dimension. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that when it's done. Um, I can't remember. Was this the one? Is this a collaboration? Is this your own? This is just me. I mean, it's sort of a, a carbide collaboration because... I mean, I am taking a lot of company time to to work on this. Um, so there will be a video on my channel, sort of as an overview. And then I'm going to just sort of deep dive this project, like the design, the, the sourcing of material, uh, like going to anodizing with it. Um, so I'll just, I'll be able to talk in greater depth about each of the different phases of this project on the Carbide 3D channel. Um, I want to just have like a nice, easy to digest video on my channel and then just put all the, the technical details that people may or may not want to know about on the carbide channel. Yeah. I'm sure you, you know, you kind of probably ran into some things machining that long. Um, is the shape of holding up pretty good with that much, uh, metal to be removed? So the only, the only complication is really, um, keeping the chips off the V wheels. 
Um, so I ended up like putting up little masking tape shields over them. Um, but other than that, the the platform has held up surprisingly well. Um, I've let it run. I think the longest continuous run I did was seven or eight hours uh, with the router at 18,000 RPM, uh, just a little air blast. I, I've I've stopped bothering to drip um, tap magic or WD-40 like in front of the end mill as it goes. So it's it's completely dry now. And the only times where I'm worried about the heat is when I'm doing a straight contour. So I'm, when I'm cutting out the profile of the board, um, it's it gets a little toasty, like 130-ish Fahrenheit. But if I'm doing just a pure adaptive toolpath, um, it's like... It, like I've felt hot tubs that are hotter than the part. Um, so like thermally, it's actually holding up really well. And I'm sure some of that heat is also from the router exhaust um, because the router gets pretty warm. My only concern is like the adhesive holding down the part. I don't want that to weaken. And as you exceed a certain temperature threshold, the adhesive will weaken. I'm not using uh, Saunders like fancy whatever powder coating tape. So I know the adhesive will weaken at a certain point, but so far it hasn't been an issue. And uh, the the router's handled continuously running really well. It's what I found most interesting was the fact that because I'm doing a lot of adaptive clearing, I've got a lot of short arcs. And so I'm engaging, I'm disengaging, and the the PID controller in that router is working overtime, just chasing that RPM. And for like tens of thousands of cycles, like it's held up flawlessly. And the only reason I killed a router is because I had that crash. And my response time was about 20 seconds. And for about 10 seconds of that, the router was just completely stalled out in the material. And so like when I got there, I could see just a tiny bit of smoke coming out of it. Um, but it still turned on. I just don't trust it anymore. So I replaced it with a new router. But on one set of brushes, and I, I did sort of a post-mortem, that router still has like plenty of, of life left in those brushes. And it removed, I want to say, probably about seven pounds of aluminum that it chewed through. So it's it's a pretty, pretty reliable uh, system, which I was personally surprised by. You've already started on the second uh, instance or a second copy of this project, right? Let's call it a serving tray. <laughs> but you're um, uh, you already. I'm actually working one, on the right? third. Oh, the third, all with the same that same uh, router. Uh, so just today, I switched to the the new one, um, and but the the original router went through a deck and a half of uh, machining, and it. it I have no doubt it would have finished all three. It's just that I kind of crashed it and ruined it. Um, but I am on the the same set of tools, which is pretty good. I'm using a single flute uh, coated uh, end mill for roughing, and that one's worked for all three of these uh, surfing trays. And um, the the only thing I've done once between the first and the second was I. I dunked it in some lye to sort of dissolve off some of the uh, aluminum that had stuck to it. And it, it's still going. And 
I'm I'm kind of impressed. So I I I'm like itching for Rob to put these in the store so I can just talk about how awesome single flutes are. Yeah, so they're not for sale yet. I was kind of wondering. Soon. We're okay. we're waiting for them to to show up so we can put them in stock on the store. Yeah, I'll be using uh so I have a, a selection of those here. I'll be using them for the first time this week. Um so I keep forgetting I have them and I, I want to try the coated single flute to see how well that works on some aluminum. So yeah, I kind of, I could have, I wish I'd remembered last time, last week because I had, um, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, I broke a couple of my Daytron single flutes. I dropped one of them. <laughs> I, I, neither one of them broke in the machine. I mean, broke cutting. I, I dropped one, taken it out of the case and, uh, chipped it and then, the way I set my stock up in the pocket and see when I'm using the collet is I'll, I'll basically like start a facing up and then, um, slide the stock up. I'll kind of stop it on the first pass and then slide the stock up to the tool. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you, cause you can slide it in the air 40 collet and then tighten it down. works really good. It's, it's quick setup for bar for round stock, but, um, I have like a tool blank, just a carbide rod. That's not ground. It doesn't have any flutes on it. It's like a dowel basically that I use normally for setting up. Um, cause I don't want to chip like the small flute pushing the stock against it by hands. And I forgot, <laughs> I forgot last time I set up and, uh, I chipped the, uh, the end of my two millimeter. Um, it doesn't take a lot when you kind of impact it with a piece of metal when it's not spinning. But, um, anyway, so I was kind of, I was out of that particular diameter and I needed it and, uh, wish I'd remembered that I had those. So I would have that would have been uh, a good, good test right then. Yeah. So sounds like, uh, oh, and for the folks that aren't familiar with shape echo, when Winston says router, um, the shape echo uses a trim router as the spindle, right? Like a home Depot or something you could pick up at home Depot or even directly from carbide, I guess. Yeah. It's not DC or it's not brushless. It's like a brush motor. It, so. A lot of people at, the higher end side sort of look at that and like wait does it really use a router can that survive like machining and it actually it holds up surprisingly well and that higher rpm pays off with smaller tooling um it's just it's not quite balanced like a datron spindle or anything or like your your nsk on the uh, v250 but for for general purposes um it's it's surprisingly effective yeah, there's starting to be a little bit of an ecosystem around like the both of the DeWalt and the Makita routers that work on the Shape Oko and probably other things. But, um, you know, I guess those are originally designed for wood trim, right? Uh, handheld wood working. But as yeah. you know, now there's like precision collets. There's third-party precision collets out there. Uh, I think. I'm trying to think what else I see. Carbide has its own precision collets. Yeah. I think there's some RPM controls too. Like, uh, I don't know if it's probably a soldering project, but you can, I think you can integrate RPM control. Yeah. Which I don't know if I've seen a torque curve on those, but if it works, so be it. And really, if you're using it in wood or plastic, the torque curve doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. So anyway, that was kind of, it's kind of neat that you're, you're probably pushing the upper bounds on, like continuous cutting and metal. Yeah, I, I'd say so. I can I can finally say that I'm catching up to Vince. Um, I've got like a three gallon bucket full of chips that I keep vacuuming up. Yeah, and you're are you? Can you talk about the spindle or the uh, trim router that you're using? Is that for sale yet? 
It is. It is. And uh, it's available with the Shape Oka if you want to purchase it with the kit. I think it's like 80 bucks. Um, it's functionally equivalent to the Makita. We targeted that smaller form factor, 65 millimeter diameter. Um, uses the same collet and brushes. So if you have one, you can just easily drop in the other. Uh, we, we sort of changed up a few things. We added a longer cord because if you're trying to route stuff through the drag chain or anything, uh, the cords that come with most routers, they it's a little tight. And we also throw in uh, brushes just sort of as a value add in case you feel like you'll need to replace them. But to be honest, I have never replaced brushes in any of my routers. Uh, people who do, I suspect that they might not be using a dust shoe or they're getting some sort of debris ingestion into the, the top of the router that's eroding the brushes faster. Um, but I've put like 100 hours on a router without any issues. It works. That's all I can say. Yeah, it works and it's a little bit lower cost than the Makita, right? Yeah, so, I think we sell it for 80 and uh, we, we pulled out like the the bases if you want to use it as like a router like handheld um but most people if you're doing woodworking you might already have one and like when i sort of transitioned uh a year or two ago to using the makita exclusively i took my dewalt um that was in one of my shape oaks and i just moved it to my router table and that's where it's lived permanently so if you have a need for a router table or just like using a router like a router, you'd, it's just easier to keep it, like keep a dedicated router for that. Otherwise you've got to like undo all your, your cable management every time you pull it out of the shape Oko. So I'd say just get a router that's dedicated to the machine. And the, the lack of those extra accessories is not a big deal for the compact router that Carbide sells. So the other project I saw, it looks like you were posting about was uh, your business cards. The, those are metal, right? They are. They're supposedly anodized, um, but some people have posted in comments on Amazon and stuff that like if you stick it in acetone, it, if it dissolves, then that means it's actually probably just powder coated. Uh, so I, I did a little bit of digging like through reviews between eBay and Amazon, and I, I settled on someone who I'm, I think is reputable. Um, and by that, I mean they're probably shipping from China, but at least I know it's anodized. And the, the response has been surprisingly positive i think that's my most popular video on instagram for 2019 um like just a video of me drag engraving my logo on one of these cards and i think where it stands out versus a laser is that it's just much sharper in terms of definition um and the it leaves a texture on the metal because it's actually deforming the surface and so as you move it around it catches the light in different ways as opposed to just being like black or matte black surface to shiny aluminum to matte black as you raster with a laser. Um, so I I have yet to see how it's received by people who I hand my business card to, but at least on social media, people are, are pretty, interest, pretty interested by the application. You actually integrated, like, I don't know if it was on purpose, but the toolpaths and the engraved pockets actually are kind of a part of the I guess the style, right? It's actually, it actually looks stylized. I know it's just adaptive clearing, but it looks like you put some thought. Yeah, at first glance, it almost looks artistic. And that's that's kind of the intent, because I think um, I wanted to, to just inject a little bit of the machinist world into this card. And I think a toolpath is the perfect way to do that, especially one that's more visually interesting than just pocketing. And so the, the arcs and the spiraling of the adaptive toolpath 
there's a certain beauty to it, I think. And to, to incorporate that with my logo, um, it's just, it's nicer than like doing a crosshatch pattern or something and it's faster. So it's just a good way to fill up space visually. That's still interesting. Yeah. So I was kind of working on a fun project this weekend too. It was a lanyard bead. Originally I was, uh, I had like two reasons I started that project. One was I've been wanting to make a lanyard bead for my new Norseman. Just couldn't really come up with a design. I wanted to do something a little unique, you know, it didn't look like the other, I, I made one other lanyard bead before and it was kind of, didn't look all that different from what else I see out there. Um, I did it in stainless last time. This time I did it in brass just because I was trying to match the gold on the on the Norseman trim. I've been working on a commercial project this week or this last week that involved drilling a bunch of really tiny like 0.7 millimeter holes on the V250 and in aluminum. And um, I'm getting like, I was expecting to have some failures because I didn't really have a good recipe for doing high RPM drilling. And uh, I'm kind of, on the third pass, I got pretty close to all the, I think I have to do like 48 holes in this piece. And I got to like 43 before the tool broke. <laughs> the first time I did it, like it broke on the third, the third hole. So just doing a little bit of tweaking, kind of getting better at it. Um, but anyway, I didn't want to keep, you know, it was a pretty complex part. So I didn't want to keep like waiting till I was halfway, you know, invested in the machining to find out my drilling recipe still wasn't right. So I kind of set that aside and, and started this lanyard bead to kind of develop the, the drilling recipe while I was, while I was, uh, you know, building apart for myself. I didn't really care if I messed it up. I just make as many as I want until I get it right. And, uh, so that's why I put like, I don't know if you've seen it on Instagram, but it's got a bunch of little holes around the, the ends. Uh, those are a little bit bigger. I think I did 0.98 millimeter for those. Cause I, broke all my seven point seven millimeter drills. I'm waiting for more to come in, um, but it was good enough. You know, it gets me in the ballpark. And as part of that, actually, I'm pretty confident now I can do those uh, smaller holes in the aluminum. Um, got the drilling working pretty well now. So yeah, that was a fun project. Um, I'll probably be sending one out to, to John Grimsmo's shop once I get the more stock in to make them. I just made the prototype this weekend. It still needs a little bit of tweaking for the next one, but pretty happy with it but i hope to uh it's a it's a good looking part yeah it looks really good in brass um that's really the first kind of full brass piece i've done on the et 50 i haven't really you know i didn't do like that surface finish testing like we did in aluminum i did a little no that's not true i guess i did one piece in brass but um one, one of those concave tests but i really uh happy with how the sidewalls came out like i the areas I wanted to be shiny and bright came out bright and the areas I wanted to be matte came out matte. So it was a pretty good outcome on the prototype. I still need to kind of work on the work holding because I used uh, the other thing I did that was new in this project. I, I picked up, a, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you call it. It's really, it's like a tool holder for a lathe, a ER40 collet on a post, right? That you could use on a, like a gang, gang holder on a lathe. But um, Maritool sells it, sells a range of those. And I was looking for something that would let me um, basically use the ER40 collet, but get the small part, like when I'm doing the bead, when I flip it over, it's only 16 millimeters long and only like three millimeters sticking out of it or three millimeters in the collet and the rest sitting right above the collet. So if I had put that in the ER40 fixture on the rotary bed, it would be like really far away from the spindle, right? I'd either have to use a long tool to reach it and I'd end up with chatter or 
use long stock, right, to get the part up. So I want to actually... Yeah, if, which that's just don't... Based on my last video where I was trying to machine basically at the B table, it is just painful to try and reach that. The the nose to table on the, the pocket NC, it's a lot. It's it's best that you elevate the part at least an inch. Yeah, and I, like the last lanyard bead I did, it actually was, you know, it was kind of the same thing, same form factor, same height on the second op. Um, it was just barely sticking out of the table. And I was able to, to do what I needed to do with a long tool holder and uh, I guess, what do you call it, a long reach stub. But I have to go a lot slower, right? Because those things are a little more prone to chatter. So I wanted to kind of use short tooling so I could go at full speed on the V250. And um, so I, that was my first experiment with the call it Chuck. And it worked really well. It's big, like, you know, it's an ER40, right? So um, I also ordered an ER25, which will handle like the half inch stock that I need to do for more lanyard beads and some other projects and give me a little bit more clearance around the part. Um, I don't, you know, I have to be a little careful with the ER41, make sure the spindle doesn't run into the collet nut, uh, but it works good. And that, that one, that one will work for one inch stock. So uh, I'll probably end up with the range of ER20, five collets to go with my collection of ER40 collets. I'll be using that solution more often. So it was kind of, you know, I've been on this quest to find risers, right? That work well on the, on the pocket and see either 3D printed or I've machined some, um, but this is probably the quickest and most flexible solution because I can adjust the height, the Z height. Uh, it's really just a round stock, right? It's, it's not a solution for everything, but for round stock, it's a, uh, it's good. Like I don't have to, uh, and the other advantage, like I normally just have like a long bar of stock sticking out and I have to deal with the cutoff, right. Um, to do the bottom, I'd rather have like pre-cut my stock on the bandsaw, which is so much faster and have it kind of near net length and then just use it in the collet and move the whole collet up closer to the spindle. So that's so far, you know, so I've only done one, one part on it, but so far I'm pretty happy with what I'm um, with how it's working. So I think I'll do some more with that. Out of curiosity, have you thought about uh, work holding internally, like sliding it onto a shaft with that's slotted or something? And then. So when I do prototyping like this, I, I start taking notes as I'm machining, like things I didn't think of or things that occur to me after I've finished a particular operation. Um, like one of the key ones. Uh, so I do, um, starting from the top, I do like the center bore the full depth of the bead in this case, and then all the outer profiling. Basically all I have to do once I cut the part off is take off the top hat off the bottom and do a couple of uh, chamfers, like an OD chamfer and ID chamfer in the center bore. And then another ring of the drilled holes, kind of an annular ring around the, the outer chamfer. Um, but that inner chamfer, I could have done um, the chamfer on both ends of the center bore from the top, right? Cause I now have this undercutting or I guess, what do you call it? A, a double-sided, um, double angle cutter. Yeah. Double angle cutter. And I, I, I use it on the gears. I didn't even think about it. It would have been perfect to, uh, cause if I had knocked that bottom chamfer out, um, before I flipped the part, I could have used the center bore for work holding, just like I do with the gears, like a little arbor. Um, so that's, that will definitely come into play if I decide to make more, more than one of these at a time. Like if I want to use the, the uh, tombstone, I could make a whole bunch on there if I, with the fixture, right? And then just flip it and have a little 3D printed uh, insert that goes in that center bore and screws into the fixture. And then I can reach all the out, outer 
the OD parts that I need to complete on the bottom. So, um, so that went in my notes. Uh, had the other thing I ran into was drilling, right? Uh, as it comes through, I drill from kind of a 45 degree angle, like through a chamfer in, all the way down into the, uh, from the outside wall into the uh, ID of the center bore. And it leaves, uh, you know, where that drill, drill tip protrudes into the center bore, it needs to be deburred. It's too small for me to run any deburring tools in the hole because like it's 0.98 millimeter diameter. So what I really need to do is, is leave a little bit of meat on the center bore and then come back and do one final uh, a contour pass through the center bore to bring it to final dimension and clean up those holes, the drill holes. So I'll, I'll basically it's a change in the order of operations. I got to do the final finishing after the drilling. So the next one should be better. Yeah, it's, you know, this one was I'm pretty happy with it. I think the next one will be perfect. Yeah, the other thing I had, all I had on hand was a one inch round brass stock and the beads like half inch diameter. So I had to machine away a lot of aluminum just to get to my near net shape. I'm sorry, not aluminum, a lot of brass. So uh, that, That's worse. Just more money down the drain. Yeah, and, and time too. Even on the V250, that was uh, just roughing out from the one inch to half inch uh, diameter was, that's about 26 minutes in machining time. And um, so I'm starting... For the next one, I'll start from nine sixteenths brass round stock. That's almost near net shape because you know, nine sixteenths to half inch is nothing. It's like one pass. Yeah, so I think yeah, my goal is to get the total machining time for one bead, like both sides, down to around fifteen minutes on the V two fifty. So that that should let me get pretty close to it. Yeah, uh, question for you: When you were figuring out your uh, drilling feeds and speeds, do you have sort of a resource for that? How are you picking like your, your settings for that? No, not for this. Well, other than SFM. So I look at like, um, I tend to find carbide drills in the material I'm looking at and try to target that SFM if I can hit it. Like I can do it on the V250. A lot of the other machines here with small drills, they don't have enough RPM to get into the recommended SFM range. So it's a little more challenging. Um, I, do, I do quite a or I used to do quite a bunch or quite a bit of a uh, small hole drilling. I think um, 1.5 and 2.5 diameter on the other mill or on the Bantam tools machine when I was making the spinner, the center caps for the spinners had a whole bunch of tiny little holes in them. And that one was, you know, it was kind of uh, just feel around till I get the right feeder speed. I don't think I ever got to the right, uh, even at 26,000 RPM, I don't think I was at the right SFM. It was close for aluminum. Um, but I'm running like the, the 0.98 inch drill and brass at 50,000 RPM, which is in the middle of uh, the recommended ranges I found for for brass as drilling SFM. All right, so I'm not gonna get there anytime soon. Well, you can do it slower. Uh, I think you just have to make some other adjustments, right? Um, the main thing I, I'm finding on the drilling is, uh, you know, chip evacuation is the biggest issue. Even I'm drilling like three millimeters deep with a less than one millimeter diameter tool, right? And that's, uh, and I'm using partial retract. Uh, I tried full retract, uh, now I have partial retract going, at least in the brass. I'll try that again in the aluminum. Uh, but I probably still need to tweak those a little bit more because when I was doing the uh, lanyard bead, a couple of, you know, a few of the holes I could hear the drill or, you know, spindle kind of slowing down a little bit. That's probably just a chip, right? Not getting out of the hole. Because uh, the next hole would be fine, right? The next three or four holes would be fine. Every once in a while, I would kind of slow down on a hole, and I'm almost positive that's just 
an instance of board chip evacuation in that particular hole or some, you know, material adhering to the, to the uh, tool. So it's not a lot of room or not a lot of uh, range between successful and breaking a tool, especially on those small tools. So, um, yeah, I don't, that's probably like drilling is probably the one place I don't have a lot of good data and I don't typically go try to find a good starting artifact. I mean, a, I don't know if the word is, I, I don't try, I just kind of do it by feel. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than my not, you know, I kind of know the SFM that I want to target, um, but I probably need to do a little more uh, scientific approach to that, or not scientific, I need to go find, I'm sure there's well-published data for, even for the small tools that I use, for drills. Like, I'll go find that for end mills. I just, for whatever reason, I don't do a lot of drilling. Um, I have like two applications that I used to drill all the time and I had a, you know, basically it worked, so I didn't go mess with it. Um, but this aluminum, this most recent commercial job just kind of has, has me looking for some, uh, I don't know if advice is the right word, but some wisdom that's already out there on the internet. Yeah, that's too bad. I was hoping you had some sort of just magic resource, but you, you can keep looking. Practical machinists. Let me know when you find something. Yeah, practical <laughs> machinist forums, you, just, you know. I never, I never ask questions on there, <laughs> but I go and I look and, you know, find someone else that asks a similar question, right? And look at the answers. Um, and that's usually a pretty good source for, uh, you know, professional machining data. Um, you know, I wouldn't say they're, they're not real hobby friendly over there. So I don't, you know, I mean, that's just their, they prefer not to hear from people that aren't, you know, doing professional work like most of the, the forum members are. So it's just fine. That's, you know, they have their, their forum, right? For their stuff. Um, but there is a lot of wisdom over there. So I do, I do tend to go mine that first before I look anywhere else, especially for, you know, feeds and speed stuff. And a lot of times it's in the ballpark, even for the little machines. Well, I've been playing around with the opposite end of the spectrum because uh, last week they they let me run a toolpath on the brother at Carbide3D. And that was somewhat eye-opening um, because I was originally... I'm trying to pre-rough some of the material that, that's going on the, uh, the, the serving tray. And um, just because I'm making multiples of these. And once I get a couple good ones that are purely done on the shape Oko, I want to knock out just a couple extras just really quickly. And so there's, there's one part where I need to remove about 75% of the material. I'm starting from one inch thick stock. And it's, it's just hours and hours and hours of work on the shape Oko that would be needless misery for me. So I wanted to to pre-rough some of it, and uh, Rob was like, yeah, you can just throw it in the brother and uh, see what you can do. And I was like, all right, do you have any feeds and speeds for it? He was like, nope, go figure it out yourself. And so I used Harvey's Machining Advisor Pro, plugged in first a 3 8 inch end mill, and then he was like, well, you can use the, uh, the half-inch rougher. And I was like, oh boy. And so I, I just I plugged in a different tool, figured out ballpark feeds and speeds, which was like 0.65 inch depth of cut and like a an eighth inch like optimal load or something. And compared to the settings I normally run, it was just like terrifying for me because I, I'm usually pushing against the limits of the machine, not the tool. But with a, a VMC, it's the other way around. So just the, the feeds and speeds you can use are just stunning and uh we actually we just ran it at 50 percent uh feed rate override just because they didn't want to push it and they also didn't trust me running my very first uh vmc program 
um, with no experience whatsoever, but it worked. And um, just seeing a material removal rate that was like 50 times faster than the Shapeoko, making like one inch long, like really nice chips was, it was, uh, I, I don't want to say I can never go back to using a desktop machine because that's kind of my bread and butter, but it was for me just very eye-opening to see the difference and like the surface finish from the brother uh, we have a s700 like that thing roughing is better than my finishing tool paths on the shape oko and so it's it's just it's a whole nother world and i hear you I, I see that stuff on youtube all the time and actually even you know seeing the machines in person at uh, the the neo at um AU just blows me away. I know it's not effortless, but <laughs> compared to what we're doing, it seems effortless, right? Those machines can just cut through aluminum like, uh, I don't know, like butter, I want to say. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know they have their set of challenges too, right? They're, you know, they, I think people that use those experience a lot of the same stuff we do, broken tools and stuff like that. But it's usually, yeah, like I said, it's because their machine has more power than the tool can handle, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... There's always going to be challenges, but they're running into a different set of challenges. But I mean, the, the fundamentals are all still the same. Like, I I was using an adaptive toolpath. I was keeping in mind, like, clearances and um, just, like, all the basics you have coming up with toolpaths, they translate. It's just a matter of recalibrating your expectations for the extra power at your disposal. Yeah, I'm glad Rob kind of just told you to go figure it out because... Uh... You know, that's basically what you would tell an apprentice, right? I was really hoping he would just send me like the 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 project file for a product we normally run, and I could just pick the feeds and speeds out of there. But yeah, it's it's a it's a good way to learn. I'll give him that. I would assume their production pieces are those pretty optimized code, right? Probably not a lot of room for margin for error in that. Um, we generally. We're not pushing as close to the limit as you think, um, just because reliability and the quantity we do means that we can afford to go a little slower. Like, um, when I saw how they were doing the touch probes, I was like, could you maybe use a both ways adaptive? Because you're just clearing out a lot of material in, in sort of a rectangular channel. And Rob was like, yeah, we could, but I just, we don't need to. So no need to get fancy and, and potentially make more mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that, you know, once it's working and the dimensions are being hit, it's like just hands off. Yeah. Let it go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's good. Um, yeah. So I, this week I'll, I'll be back to work on the commercial stuff. Um, hopefully with a little bit more success on the drilling and I'll talk about that more on the next, on the next DFX, um, kind of the strategies I'm using, Drilling. I actually tried some other things, uh, interpolating with an end mill with boring, uh, which is also working pretty good. Um, I'll end up having to do that anyway because the drill doesn't quite take me to the final jam diameter, right? So I have to finish the hole. So the boring op is something I only recently started doing because someone was like commented on my videos that I never used it, and it's it's not bad for um, larger diameter holes. I really like it, um, especially for like finishing out. Um, like just taking away axial or sorry radial stock to leave for holes that are smaller than about 1.5 times uh, the end mill diameter I subjectively feel like uh, 
contour with a continuous ramp is better. Um, just because even if you have a small pitch, if the hole is really narrow, um, it's still taking a much steeper um, approach to reach that next um, like uh, layer down. Yeah, Z level. Yeah, I have so I have some research to do on bore, um, and in particular, I, I have reason to believe it, it's going to be more accurate than interpolating with like say pocket or uh, one of those other ops. But I don't know enough about it yet to answer authoritatively. So I, I was kind of in the same boat you were and somebody suggested, somebody who is advice I trust suggested it. And um, it's not something, it's not an op I normally use. Uh, I always kind of think of it as something you use with the boring bar, but <laughs> um, or that kind of tool. But I just recently found out, you know, it works just fine. Generates a good tool path for end mills too. So Yeah. And I, I guess it's also immune to the, um, the when Fusion just basically... Uh, facets everything oh okay um, your your accuracy with that would probably be, be better i would think but i haven't actually looked at like the the toolpaths to see if it, there's actually a difference hopefully someone at autodesk can chime in on that yeah so my my to do for either next episode or one uh, upcoming episode is to, i'll have a little more data on that um compared to like at least what i normally use pocket or uh contour on certain holes and see what you know, if there's a good rule of thumb on when that's the right thing to do, uh, right off the pick, and you know, advantages and trade offs and all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm curious myself. So uh, I just need to reach out and do a little little digging and find out more about it. I'll report back here once I have that. Well, I'm excited to hear back on those results. Lanyard beads will resume once I get the stock and uh, the other work holding. So I, I had to order some more collets too for the. Uh, like the, the reason I went with that big ER40 um, mainly was because I already had a bunch of ER40 collets, but uh, I like that work holding so well. I'm gonna use it for some other jobs, um, so I, I'll probably use the ER25 one I, I just ordered this weekend. Uh, but I had to order a set of collets for that too. I think I got a good starting range to hold most of my round stock diameters that I work with. Um, so yeah, hopefully I'll have some Instagram stuff out with that more about that work holding next week. Uh, but I'm looking forward to making the uh, more of the lanyard beads. I have um, brass coming, but I also ordered some I ordered 303, 316, and grade 2 titanium all in uh, 9 sixteenths, except for the titanium I can only get in, in half inch. So um, I'm going to try the same uh, that same model with the different materials and see how that goes. The drilling is going to be a little, a little scary and some of it's harder materials, but... Uh, so it may not work, but anyway, I'll give it a try. You do that. I'm going to try and go in the opposite direction. Um, JPL Richard gave me a couple like small uh, lathe chucks, three jaw, four jaw. And so I'm going to try and adapt that to the pocket NC sometime this summer. Uh, I bought two collet chucks. I uh, got the ER40 for round work holding, but I also picked up the ER16. It's my uh, Sureline four jaw chuck that I bought for the pocket NC has a uh, ER16 female threads on the bottom. And I was, you know, I was thinking that'd be perfect. I'd just stick this uh, collet chuck in the ER40 collet on the PNC, take the nut off, and the uh, four jaw chuck should screw right in. <laughs> but that's when I found out there's actually two standards for ER16 threads. There's, I guess, there's the 
M, right? The small, the low profile nut, which is what came on the mirror tool um, post. And then the the Sureline has the regular size nut. So it's like 19, M19 versus M21 or M22 threads. Uh, so yeah, it didn't quite work out, <laughs> but it, you know, I'll still probably pursue that idea. Uh, something that gets grip in the ER40, uh, PNC ER40 call it uh, post with just some threads of the right diameter on one end should be pretty easy to make. And then I can attach the, the four jaw to that. I kind of like that cause I can change the height with that setup. I can kind of sit the four jaw wherever I want it above the table. Cause originally I was just going to make a mounting plate that bolted to the table and then, uh, had a hole and basically just bolt the chuck with a nut coming up through the bottom. I mean, a bolt coming up through the bottom for the M19, but, uh, I kind of like the having it on a post idea and using the collet to hold it. So that's a project for a little bit later this summer. I'll get that, that four jaw running eventually. I'll race you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you have to take the rest off yours. <laughs> I think it looked like it was, it, it's, it was in pretty sad shape, but it was, but I, I have some, some rust remover. I'm just going to dunk it in there, give it a little scrub and, uh, hopefully, hopefully it, uh, runs true. Yeah, it should. Um, and that, I think that's a good solution for stock that's too big for the ER40 call it round stock. So I have, a like 1.5 and two inch round stock that, uh, it's always a bit of a challenge to hold that. I can do it in the vice, but I want it kind of in the center for you know held in the collar right or something that's based on that centering of the of the on the table the the extra benefit is you can also do uh id work holding right if you reverse the jaws exactly yeah um yeah so i'm looking forward to uh, eventually getting that working i've seen it you know there's other pnc owners that have that solution already going and uh i can't remember who i don't know if johnny q90 has it somebody out there had it that's kind of where I first saw it and I'm like, yeah, that's perfect. So when do you get back? I know you head out tomorrow. Is it all week or? Uh, no, I'm getting back on Wednesday. Like, so I'm flying out. I'm landing in Atlanta at like 6 p.m. I'll probably just find a Chick-fil-A or something, grab dinner, go to my hotel, crash, try and hit the gym in the morning, um, go to this tool extravaganza all day Tuesday, fly back Wednesday. So it's just, it's like, a lot of flying. Yeah, I hope they have some good, good giveaways for you there, some good tools or something. I would just be happy with good food, and they are taking us out to dinner, so there is that. All right. Well, I, uh, I think I'm gonna get back to work on the, the piece I gotta get done tonight. I finished my I'm taxes. Packing. Yeah, <laughs> taxes are done. You're packed. So <laughs> I think we're both ready for Monday, somewhat. <laughs> I don't know if that's something anyone would ever normally say. What's that? Like, Ready for Monday? Forward to Monday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I will say good night and I uh, hope you have a safe trip and looking forward to talking to you when you get back on Wednesday. Sounds good, Eddie. Have a good one. Good night, Winston.